Bibles to the New Testament book of Luke. Find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke on the right side of your Bibles. We've been in the Gospel of Luke since the uh, first of the year, and as I was thinking about it, coming here today, uh, this church is in its infancy, but we've been here six months already. It doesn't really feel like it, but uh, we're cruising along. We're a little bit beyond that now, so uh, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Uh, We're going to be reading from verses 18 through 25 in Luke chapter 1, but we're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25 a little bit more closely this morning. Luke chapter 1, reading uh, verses 18 through 25. And as you're turning there, we've been uh, sort of following this beloved, what the beloved physician Luke has written for us uh, about Zacharias and his work in the temple over the last couple weeks and really just sort of digging into this miracle that's about to happen to uh, his wife and uh, himself. And all of these events, of course, really are going to just eventually lead us up to the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And which we'll start to dig into in the next couple of weeks, starting in verse 26. But as we've been studying this account, we've really just building on top of an existing foundation that's already been laid for us. And that foundation was laid out for us in the Old Testament. That there would come from one, from the Lord, one who would be able to correct the fallenness of humanity. One that would be able to actually take away the sins of men and women and cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. One sent from heaven so that we might go to heaven. One who would die so that we might live. And so we're going to finish this section out this week. I believe Steve's going to take a break next week for Easter Sunday. And then we're going to be getting into the details about the birth of the Messiah, the prophesied, foretold, and promised Messiah. But this week we're looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, starting reading from uh, verse 18. So if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, let's do that. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I love seeing all these young men and women with their Bibles open, ready to read, so that's great. Verse 18 says this, Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Verse 24 says, After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your holy word. Lord, help us to treasure it beyond any activity that may consume us through the week. Help us to be regularly 
taking in the nourishment that it holds. Father, we do thank you for sending your son. We thank you for everything we've studied and read so far, Lord, that your mighty hand has been on all of the world and actively working, even though for us sometimes, Lord, it feels like it's not. Lord, help our unbelief that you are powerful, that you are mighty, and that you are active in our lives. Father, thank you for your word, and we just pray that this time will glorify you and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I had uh, mentioned, we've been following what Luke has meticulously recorded for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the events that are surrounding the birth of the one who would be called John the Baptist. We saw how Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. We saw how they were seen as righteous in the sight of God. And we saw all that back in verse 6. The text didn't simply focus just on Zacharias, but it uses the pronoun they, meaning both he and his wife. And as the scriptures describe to us the condition of this couple spiritually, it also describes to us a condition of them physically. And it tells us that they were advanced in years and Elizabeth was barren and thus they didn't have any children. They were old, they never had a child, and without heavenly intervention, they were going to remain so. But as Steve mentioned several weeks ago, that the fact that they were walking blamelessly in their commandments of the Lord did not mean that they were walking in sinless perfection. Zacharias demonstrates this very effectively when he goes into the temple of the Lord and he's there to do his priestly service of altering or offering up incense at the altar of incense. And he's confronted by an angel, Gabriel, who had been sent by God to bring him a message. And that message, of course, was the fact that God has indeed heard their prayer and that their desire to have a children or desire to have a child was going to be fulfilled by God. What seemed like a human impossibility was going to be a divine actuality. When it seemed like all hope was lost, it was actually just going to be hope deferred. Now, Zacharias shows us how frail he is by doubting that angel's message and thus incurring, incurring a rebuke upon himself. Last week, we saw how merciful God was in not taking the life of Zacharias, but only mildly disciplining him with muteness or the inability to speak. We saw that we are just like Zacharias in doubting the Lord and, and not taking him at his word. We saw how we are just like Zacharias and not revering the holiness of God. And yet, instead of killing Zacharias like he did Uzzah, who reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant when it was about to fall from a cart, our God is merciful and full of grace. Simply and yet powerfully, he just strikes Zacharias with muteness. Now, when you think about poor Uzzah, we, we look at that and we kind of question that, don't we? we? We think, God, how could you? But you know, God was not unjust in striking down Uzzah. 
God, consider this, that God had prescribed exactly how that Ark of the Covenant was to be transported. He didn't put sockets on the side and poles for it to be carried so that later, when they wanted to, they could throw it on a cart. They did not obey the commandments of the Lord. But God spoke, and so it was to be so. And as Zacharias doubts, he becomes mute. He can't talk. And if he can't talk, he can't teach the people back at home when he goes back after his priestly service, which is what he was supposed to do. So there's a sense of shame that comes upon Zacharias in doubting that the Lord is able to do what he said he would do through the angel Gabriel. So the angel declares to Zacharias in the temple that he will have a son named John, that he will be great in the sight of the Lord, that he will drink no wine or no liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and that he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, and that he will go as a forerunner to the Messiah. We saw all that back in verses 15 through 17. But the angel tells him that despite that he and Elizabeth being advanced in years, they will have a son and they will name him John. They won't have to worry about baby names because God's going to give it to them. God says to them, not only am I going to give you your child, but I get to name him. And that name is not just by chance or by any coincidence, but the, the name John literally means Jehovah has shown grace. Because of God's patience with mankind, because of God's mercy with humanity, because of God's long-suffering with this sinful, wicked world, because of God's forbearance with a world that is just full of corruption and sin, instead of destroying the world with his wrath and being just in doing so, even 2,000 years ago, he's going to send a child to this elderly, common couple so that he might grow up and prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ and have a people ready for him. We asked some of these questions last week. Has God been merciful with you and your own sinfulness? Let me be the first to say amen. Does God regularly extend his grace to you because that you doubted that your situation or your concern was too difficult for him to handle? Just like Zacharias. One of my favorite verses is from Lamentations 3:21 and 23, which reads this. It says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see, our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God who is faithful. Our God is a God who is patient. And our God is a God of grace. This is what God is going to do through the birth of John and ultimately through Jesus Christ. He's going to display his grace to humanity by providing a way of escape from his wrath. Well, when we left off last week, we saw in verse 23 that it simply just said that when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Now remember that the priest served for a week on the temple grounds in Jerusalem there, two times a year. The rest of the time, they were to minister to their people back at home in their villages and in their towns and teach them the word of God. But Zacharias wouldn't be able to do that. 
he would be shamed. His mouth would be sealed shut by the Lord. But Luke really isn't quite done with this part of this historical narrative that we have here. He doesn't just immediately burst into the account of Gabriel and Mary in verse 26, as important as that is. As a meticulous and a careful and a complete historian, he's got one more person that he wants to deal with. More than any other gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, Luke emphasizes the value of women in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Thirteen women are mentioned in Luke's gospel that are not mentioned in any of the other, other gospels. And so just in, instead of just sending Zacharias to his home and in the Judean hillside in verse 23 and then picking up with Gabriel and Mary's interaction in verse 26, he wants us to know Elizabeth's reaction to all of this. And he does this for a couple of reasons. So first of all, in our text for today, verse 24, it says that after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept, kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying. Now, we're going to get to that saying part in just a moment, uh, but in verse 25. But I want you to see three very clear things from this verse in verse 24. First of all, and very simply, God does exactly as he says he's going to do. When God speaks, it will come to be. What God desires, it will come to pass. When God wanted to create something out of nothing, we call that ex nihilo, out of nothing, he spoke. Psalms 33, verses 6 through 9, it says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Along those same lines in Hebrews 11.3, it says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. When God wanted to birth time, he did so. Psalm 92, 90 verse 2, says this, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When God wanted to illuminate the world, he spoke in Genesis 1, verse 3, saying, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. When God wanted to send forth his Son to redeem fallen humanity, he did so. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. So, what God says, or what God decrees, or whatsoever God wills, it will indeed come to pass. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, lays this out very, very explicitly for us. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, or rather 8 through 11, excuse me. It says, remember this, and be assured. Recall it to your mind, trans you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. So what's the implication for us? <clears throat> the implications for us are very real and they are very personal for each one of us here. God has spoken and God has declared that there is coming a day. There is coming a day, a great and terrible day of judgment for all of mankind. There is looming on the horizon of time a day of, ju of final judgment. God will hold court. And even each of us, each individual person will stand there and he will execute his perfect justice. And when that day comes, you will be either be of one of two families. You're either going to be a child of God and swept up into everlasting glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you will be a child of the devil and you will be cut down and cast into the everlasting lake of fire. Paul says this in Acts 17, 30 through 31. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, meaning us, meaning humanity, not knowing God and understanding his, who he is and his power, it says that God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Turn away from your sin. That's what he's calling you to do, you and me. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That man is Jesus Christ. And if you do not have Jesus Christ as your advocate, you will not be swept up into the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. God has spoken, and it is so. God has said it, and it will be. And just as the angel had told Zacharias that his wife will have a son... What happened shortly after he went back home? She became pregnant, exactly as the angel of the Lord had declared it to be, as a messenger sent from God. Elizabeth, who was old, she was barren, and naturally unable to be, be able to bear children, is now supernaturally able to conceive, just as Gabriel declared it. What was a human impossibility becomes a divine actuality. So, the first thing that we see from this verse is that God does exactly as he says he's going to do. The second thing we see from this is that God uses common, everyday people to accomplish his purposes. Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in the Judean hill country, which is just south of Jerusalem. And God saw fit to use Zacharias and Elizabeth to be chosen vessels to bring about the forerunner to Jesus Christ. He didn't select a king or a wealthy aristocrat or someone of nobility to bring John the Baptist into the world. He selected a common priest of whom there were some 18,000 to choose from. But that's exactly how God works. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 through 30, it says this, for consider your calling, brethren. He's talking to believers, you and me. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world 
and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God, none of us. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You and I have nothing to brag about except the Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I have no good thing. Everything that we have, everything that we possess, our talents, our knowledge, our wisdom, everything about us comes from God. We have no room for boasting except boasting that we have the Lord and not in an arrogant manner. Well, Elizabeth will do exactly that as we shall see in the next verse, is that she's going to give honor to whom honor is due. She will recognize from whom her pregnancy originated. But yet God would use this common couple to accomplish his purpose of redemption. In spite of any of their shortcomings, their son would be the one who actually gets to point and identify the Messiah and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would be the greatest among those born of women, the greatest Old Testament prophet, because he would actually get to see the Messiah. God selected Abraham out of the world, of all the people in the world, to bring about the Jewish nation, and ultimately Jesus Christ. We've got to remember that Abraham, when he was called, was in the land of Ur, which was all the way on the other side of the Arabian desert. And he would use this childless, elderly nomad to bring about the salvation of mankind despite his shortcomings as a liar. Moses was a murderer. David was a murdering adulterer. Peter was just a fisherman. Matthew, a despised tax collector. But that's exactly how God likes to operate. God loves the underdog. God loves to to use those who are ill-equipped and God loves to demonstrate his power through the weak so that they are made strong. God can use you and me too. In spite of your shortcomings, in spite of your perceived inadequacies, God is more than able to use you to bring many sons to glory. And so Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, is used by God to bring to birth the one who would be known by Jesus as the greatest of those born among women. So first of all, whatever God says, he's going to do. Second, God uses ordinary people. And then thirdly, God uses women to bring about the salvation of mankind. Elizabeth was the chosen vessel by which God would bring about John the Baptist and her cousin Mary to bring about the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only was Zacharias chosen by Lot to go into the Holy of Holies to offer up incense as a symbol of the prayers of the people outside, but Elizabeth would be chosen by God to conceive and bring about the one who would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We could go on and on and on about the impact of women that they have in the kingdom of God, but we'll save, have to save that for another time. In verse 24, lastly, It says that she kept herself in seclusion for five months. 
Now there's lots of opinions out there about what does this actually mean? Why did it happen? Well, some suggest that she kept herself secluded in a time of prayer. Others argue that the reproach of her neighbors uh, caused her and drove her into seclusion. Still others remain, or, uh, argue that she remained secluded to, to hide herself, to keep the birth and the, and the pregnancy secret until the proper time. But really the text does not say, and it doesn't, it's really sort of speculative for us to even to try to figure out why. Uh, with the infant mortality rate, she kept herself secluded in order to confirm the viability of the pregnancy. Who knows? Uh, it's very possible that she remains secluded and devoted in prayer, but we just can't be for certain. We just simply knew that, know that she withdrew, and Luke doesn't record as to why. And then lastly for today, <clears throat> verse 25, it says that she was saying this, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Well, as we had mentioned before, barrenness carried with it a stigma or a reproach from society. It was a shame. It was seen as an execution of divine judgment and was considered a curse from God. But the stigma would have been really a common reaction imposed by the Jews because they would have thought that any deformity, any suffering, was always because of some sort of sin in either that person or their parents' life. Well, the disciples of Jesus... They made this same assumption. When they passed by the man in John chapter 9 who was blind from birth, they asked this question. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Even though Jesus did not deny really the connection between sin and suffering, it is sometimes the case, but not always the case. In the case of this blind man, personal sin of either him or his parents was not the cause but that it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that's where exactly we find Zacharias and Elizabeth, this elderly, barren couple whose merciful act of God would be to give them joy and gladness in their old age. Why? So that God might display his might and his power through them. Now, there were many women who were barren in the Bible and unable to give birth until the Lord intervened. Sarai in Genesis 11.30, Rebecca in Genesis 25.21, Rachel in Genesis 29.31, Manoah's wife in Judges 13.2, Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, verse 5, and then finally our Elizabeth here in Luke chapter 1. But because of the prayers of Zacharias and Elizabeth and the redemptive plan of God, God would allow Elizabeth to conceive and take away the stigma and the shame and the reproach from her and allow her and Zacharias to have joy and gladness as the angel had described to them back in verse 14. But it's very interesting the fact that Elizabeth recognizes from where or by whom her humiliation and her disgrace has been removed. She says that this is the way the Lord has dealt with me and that he looked with favor upon me, that he has taken away my disgrace from among men. Essentially, what she is doing is she is expressing gratitude in the active, personal involvement of God and lifting up her burdens. 
Surely those floods of memories would have come back to her of all those times of prayer and fasting and beseeching the Lord to intervene and provide for them a child. And she rightly expresses that it is God who has dealt with her and that it is God that has looked with favor upon her and that it is God who takes away her disgrace from among men. But isn't it wonderful to know that alongside of God's great global plan of humanity that he would answer the prayer of this childless couple in the midst of their pain. Not only is God transcendent, but God is intimate. He's intimately acquainted with your ways and mine. You see, what we've been really covering in the first part of this Gospel of Luke is really the tale of two sons. Two sons are going to be born. Two sons are going to have a supernatural conception. Both are going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Both will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Both would be announced by the Gabriel or the angel Gabriel. But one would take away his mother's disgrace by his birth. The other one is going to take away the disgrace of men from among God by his death. You see, when Jesus Christ went to Calvary, and he was nailed on that cross for your sin and for my sin. It says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and he despised the shame. And he actually looked at the cross with joy that he might defeat sin and shame. And yet maybe you're here this morning and you're full of guilt and you're full of shame because of something you've done this week. What can you do about it? You can look to the cross. The guilt of your sin and your shame cannot come, cannot stand or withstand one glance of that cross. For it is there that Christ defeated death. He defeated the guilt. He defeated the shame so that he might take away your guilt and your shame and your disgrace from God. The hymn before the throne of God above speaks of this looking upon Jesus for forgiveness of guilt and shame. It says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look upon him and pardon me. See, Jesus Christ is the only way that we can have our sin and our shame and our disgrace taken away. Look to him this morning. Look to the cross and look to Jesus Christ, keeping your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for taking away our disgrace and our shame. You defeated death at the cross so that we might live. Lord, help us to walk in holiness to you. Help us to be disciplined for the purpose of godliness. 
Help us to gird up the loins of our minds and run to you. Help us to seek you in whatever endeavor, whatever trouble comes our way. Help us to look to the cross. Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. How faithful you are and how merciful you are to us. Let us honor you with our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.